Salutations, movie fans. Coming to you live from Denton, Texas. This is the Daniel Berrios Podcast. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the second episode of the Daniel Berrios Podcast. This is a show about the movies as told by yours truly. My name is Daniel Berrios. It is a crisp, rainy November night here in Denton, Texas. I'm recording this on Saturday, November 28th, 2020. Uh, Before I get started, I want to thank all of you who have shown your support for the inaugural episode. I got a great response out of it. I got a bunch of people said they liked the show. So for those of you that listened, I thank you very much. Your support is always appreciated. We are on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and importantly, Apple Podcasts. So the big three, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, you can find the Daniel Berrios Podcast. More places coming soon. It's not really a news-heavy week for me, and so most of today is actually going to be filled with all the stuff I saw and logged on Letterboxd, so we're going to probably blitz through eight movie reviews today. So as far as news goes, I'm just going to kind of go over it, and we'll talk about it, and see what y'all think. So first things first, looks like we got a couple of updates for Black Panther 2. There were some people thinking that maybe we would get Chadwick Boseman to pull a Tupac and hologram himself into the movie. Thankfully, they shut that down very, very quickly. But uh, we did get a couple of updates, one of them being that Shuri, played by Letitia Wright, his kid sister in the movie, Black Panther's kid sister, she will have a more prominent role in the film. Now, that is potentially, we don't know what that means. In the comics, Shuri does become the Black Panthers, so... Maybe in her brother's absence or his death, we don't even know if they're going to acknowledge his disappearance from the movie as maybe a disappearance or a straight-up death. Maybe she takes over the mantle of Black Panther. And, you know, that is something that would be interesting. I think it's the most logical way to go based on, you know, keeping the fans relatively happy or at least giving them a Black Panther movie that at least makes sense in their world, while also having to reconcile with the fact that this guy made one of the best Marvel heroes to date. I know a lot of people look at somebody like Killmonger or Shuri or Okoye as kind of the scene stealer of that film, but I really loved what Bozeman brought to it. I thought he was one of those heroes that was uh, consistently conflicted. He was a strong, wise, he changed his mind after listening to information and really reckoning with the consequences of his decisions. That's a hero that we really needed in the Marvel Universe. That guy seemed to me like the best example of a flawed man who was working out some of his crap throughout this film and ultimately landed in a better place. So having that presence gone and put with his sister, who's definitely a lot younger, she's a lot more energetic, she's super smart, but we don't really know much of Shuri in a context outside of the highly energetic, super smart teen person. I don't really see Shuri as like a full-fledged character yet, so it is going to be interesting to see how the movie, uh, having her potentially be the full-blown lead of it, 
will end up developing her character, how she will have to take upon this burden of carrying her country forward. And then we've got the second piece of news, which is the actor from Narcos, Tenoch Huerta. He's going to be the villain. We don't know what villain yet. There's definitely a lot of rumors going around that it could be somebody like the White Tiger. More notably, I think it would be Namor. It's kind of like uh, Marvel's version of Aquaman, but he's super badass. We would introduce Atlantis in the Marvel Universe. Definitely opening ourselves up to the wider and weirder worlds post-Thanos, you know? I'll, I think all we need to do is just be patient. Let's just be patient with this, and then everything, I think, will turn out just fine. I move on to some weird, weird news and it really isn't that weird if you think about it. Like, Hollywood's going to do remakes and sequels all the time. But to me, Predator 5, do, do we need this? Do we need any movie, Daniel? Are you going to stop breathing? Are you going to choke? Are you going to starve to death if you don't have any movie? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, look, Predator has been a thing for over 30 years. It's going to be 40 years here in a couple of years now. And I'm just wondering... What have y'all mined out of this thing? Is there anything left to mine? Is it that feeling of like a Halloween 2018 that y'all haven't really been able to grab the magic of the last Predators? Full disclaimer, by the way, I've only seen the first movie. I own that little triple pack that has Predator 2 and Predators, and I've heard those are good in their own ways. But regarding something like uh, the, the first Predator has... I don't think there's been any movie that's really topped it, or at least in popular consciousness that has really gotten close to it. So maybe they're hunting for that? <laughs> Ignore the pun. Oh my god, does Disney own Predator? 20th Century Fox. Oh my god, Disney owns Predator. And Alien. That is weird. Does that mean we can get, like, Alien versus Predator in, like, a, a Disney animation cameo, like Wreck-It Ralph 3 or something? The person that Disney is entrusting, Disney and 20th Century Fox are entrusting to do the Predator 5 is Dan Trachtenberg, who helmed 10 Cloverfield Lane here in 2016, which was critically lauded. A lot of people really liked it. I was kind of iffy on it. I thought it was just kind of bland. To be honest with you, I really wasn't as drawn in as everybody was. I did enjoy John Goodman, though, and he is just a national treasure, and that honestly was supporting actor material. Like, that stuff, he was really, really good in it. I guess Trachtenberg has a good relationship with these people. I'm hoping that he has a vision. At least, you know, maybe because he is so good at just making these claustrophobic spaces, maybe he can translate that to the claustrophobia of being hunted in the jungle. I don't know, maybe that kind of stuff can translate. He's got a eye for having sci-fi that's grounded but definitely, like, grounded enough to make you believe that it could be a potential outcome of our world without losing some of the grandeur and the weirdness of, like, aliens in space. You know what I'm saying? So maybe Predator 5 will be the one where they finally get it right, finally get, like, a successor to the first movie, and who, who knows? Maybe Trackingbird has something good up his sleeve. Look, the internet has been losing their damn mind. Their damn mind. Over this Clifford the Big Red Dog remake, this leaked photo came out first of what Clifford the Big Red Dog would look like in his Paramount live-action debut. People were talking about this like it was some kind of like Cats monstrosity. Sidebar, I love Cats. It's one of my favorite movies. Like, it's better than Rise of Skywalker. 
that movie is just hilarious and awesome and campy and great. But people were reacting to this Clifford the Big Red Dog thing like it was some sort of CG monstrosity. And I'm sitting there and thinking, it's a dog. It just looks like a dog with big old cartoon eyes. Like, are, are y'all really freaking out about this? Like, are people really out there going, oh my god, redesign Clifford the Big Red? What do you want, is my question. Do you really want them to go out there and just paint a Labrador red and toss them in front of a screen? Like, I, I cannot ask this enough. It just seemed the strangest thing that film Twitter got mad about this week was Clifford the Big Red friggin' Dog. I was like, look, guys, if this is all you're complaining about, then really you have better lives than you present yourselves to have. Because, Jesus, it's a dog. It looks like a dog. It's happy looking. It's cute. It's probably going to be big as hell. And the movie's probably not going to be great. It's probably going to be just some, you know, actors playing with like a CGI puppet. And maybe they go for a car ride somewhere. I don't know. And there's going to be shenanigans and whatnot. It's probably going to get like a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Y'all need to calm down. It's just a big red dumb old dog. I did not go out for Black Friday. And it, thankfully this year, all the deals happened before Thanksgiving. So while I was out doing groceries, I pop into Walmart and, hey, Birds of Prey, Invisible Man, they're both eight bucks on Blu-ray. And I'm like, you know what? About time to grab it. So my Black Friday haul included Birds of Prey and Invisible Man for eight bucks. And then when I was at Target, they had the two, buy two, get one free. And I ended up finding Godzilla King of the Monsters, which I've always wanted, but never found a great price for it. Found it for seven bucks. And then this not necessarily pissed me off in the way that like, you know, you'll be at Walmart and there are some great movies that never got their due. And so they're in the $5 bin way too quickly. Dr. Sleep was four bucks at Target on Blu-ray. And I sat there and just marveled in how beautiful the sale was and immediately swiped it. It is the best Mike Flanagan thing ever made. And I'm not really a big Mike Flanagan fan, but this is the one that finally like tipped me over the board. And then I managed to grab Little Women. I haven't seen the new Little Women yet. My wife saw it, recommended it, so I did a blind buy specifically for her. Let me know what y'all got for Black Friday, by the way, if you want to... Hit me up with any comments if you want to tell me why Clifford the Big Red Dog is the worst design ever. Hit me up on Twitter at Berrios Podcast. That is B-E-R-R-I-O-S, the word podcast. But now, we go into the bulk of this episode. This is me just running down a bunch of the stuff that I saw and letting y'all know what I think of it. I don't know if you're like this as a movie fan, little sidebar. I don't know if y'all are like this as movie fans, that if you go for too long without watching a movie, you start getting irritated. It's kind of like I haven't been able to do the thing that I love for so long that I just get grumpy and I get annoyed and I get really sad. That's one of the things. I get super depressed when I haven't seen a movie in a while, even if it's a bad movie. I just There's something about sitting there, watching something, absorbing art... That is so essential and near and dear to my daily life that if I don't get to consume that at least just a little bit, it really messes with my mental health. I don't know if that's common with y'all, but for me, definitely. Like, if I haven't seen a movie in a while, I just get irritable. And then I watch something great, and then it's like everything balances out again. I don't know, something cool. 
So I started with a kind of double feature across a couple days of Italian horrors. And the first movie I saw was Dario Argento's Deep Red. And I started watching this because I watched I listened to another great podcast called Junk Food Cinema. And on their My Bloody Valentine episode, they were talking about Giallo, which is kind of like the Italian... I'm going to generalize this way too much because I don't know too much about this genre, but it's like an Agatha Christie mystery mixed with a whole lot of blood. It's kind of like the predecessor to a slasher. That's why they were talking about it on My Bloody Valentine because you can see the early slashers like Friday the 13th and My Bloody Valentine borrowing a lot from Giallo. And I'm like, you know, I've never really watched one of these movies, so I hit them up on Twitter. They gave me a list of recommendations, most of them Dario Argento films. Dario Argento being the director of the original Suspiria, a movie which I adore. And I found this one on Amazon Prime and really dug it. I want you to listen to this score, a piece of the score. And if this doesn't get you hyped, you won't like this movie. This slaps so hard, and I'm so in love with everything I'm hearing here. It's just this cool movie. It's got such a stink of cool on it. The movie is about a pianist who is investigating the murder of one of his neighbors, and he's helped by a reporter who is, you know, she's hot-headed. She's always looking for the scoop. And the reporter, let me go and look up the name of the cast real quick. Daria Nicolodi is the reporter, and she passed away, like, this week. It was wild. Uh, she was a frequent Argento collaborator. I think she actually had one of his daughters, which is interesting. Uh, compared to the pianist, uh, his name, uh, he's played by David Hemmings. He's this very, like, kind of stuffy, slightly pretty misogynist guy who's talking about how, like, women are just naturally weaker. And she is kind of entertaining his bullshit in, like, I'm going to poke and prod and bother you kind of way. And they have this great arm wrestling match. I don't know. Their relationship is pretty playful. You're always trying to figure out who the killer is. And something this movie does, going back to slashers, is it puts you in the perspective of the killer a lot of the time. So, like movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween, you get to see the killer go around. And Argento is really good at being clever as to hiding all of these little clues. Like, you'll look at something... At, through the killer's point of view and just when they're about to go to like a reflective surface the camera stops or the camera turns or you maybe get a different point of view there will be a clue that could appear if the person would just turn their head at the right second hell there are clues that are just in plain sight that once i figured out what they meant in the film i just kind of like slap myself in the forehead and i'm like dummy it was right there in front of you. How did you not know this? And then the kills, if you're a fan of slasher movies, they're just 
gory as hell. It's one of these movies that gives you some of these kills that makes you just go, oh god, that is awful. But the special effects work is fantastic, and you know, Dario Argento, anything with his scores are excellent. The cinematography is just full of these glorious magentas and jades. It's just one of those movies that feels like a painting every single frame. So if you're into detective movies, if you're into slasher films, if you're into movies that you just want a visual feast for the eyes, it's a little slow. I'm going to give you that. It's a little slow of a movie, but I think Deep Red was just a really entertaining mystery, bloody mystery film, and I think you like it too. It's on Amazon Prime. And then I moved on to the second half of my on an impromptu, unplanned Italian horror, and I dove into my very first Lucio Fulci movie. Is it Lucio or Lucio? I don't know. Somebody let me know. At Various Podcast on Twitter. Uh, Lucio Fulci, City of the Living Dead. Uh, Lucio Fulci, known mostly for the Dawn of the Dead unofficial sequel, Zombie, from 76, I think. He came out with this film, I think in the 80s, and it's a movie about everything. Really, it's about everything. You've got witches, possession, melting floors, uh, people that are rotting, uh, teleporting zombies, uh, interdimensional portals, fire, earthquakes, it's like the apocalypse, there's like a weird pseudo-omen vibe going on, and there's just a lot happening in this movie. What's really, really good about it is the gore. This is a gore hounds movie. There is some brain trauma in this film that is the single best thing I've ever seen in a horror movie. I'm not comparing this to a head explosion. This is different. The head explosion, you know, you see the implode, you know, from the inside out. And again, Scanners is the king of that. Uh, David Cronenberg's movie, also a pretty good film you should check out. But when we're talking about like a zombie grabbing someone by the scalp and just ripping their brain out of the stalk, like the movie does it two or three more times because the effect is so damn good that you just gotta watch it and try to pretend, like imagine how was that made? How do you do that? How are you such a good makeup artist that you make that work? Like it's such a showstopper of an effect that it was just fantastic. It definitely feels like a low-budget movie, but it's got that kind of charm to it. That kind of like, okay, we're just going to make a movie with whatever we've got and go for it. That kind of stuff to me is always welcome in a film, even if the film's not that great. And let's be honest, the acting is terrible. Fulci does not know how to direct his actors. The writing is laden. I'm telling you, there are so many scenes where people are just talking and explaining the movie to you. And it gets boring. That's one of the bad things about this movie is that it's a 93-minute movie and it is so long and can get so dull. But man, when this movie decides to wake the fuck up and set people on fire and send zombies after you, it is so much fun. So that's kind of where I'm marginally recommending it. Uh, This movie has a scene where uh, somebody is put into peril and they give absolutely no fucks and it made me laugh so hard I cried. So if you're that type of person that's sitting there like, oh my God, why doesn't this person just do X, Y, and Z? Well, guess what? This person did X, Y, and Z in 0.5 seconds and when you watch the movie, just hit me up and let me know that yes, 
I'm pretty sure I know where you laughed your ass off, Daniel, because I laughed my ass off. Also, this has a really, really fluffy cat. It's super cute. It's gray. It's got this like little fluffy cheek, and I just wanted to rub my face in it because it's such a cute cat. If you give me a cute cat in a movie, I'm going to love your movie. I also noticed that Fulci has this great obsession with eye close-ups, and so it's kind of neat. You know, it Tarantino has his feet, which can get kind of gross, but I really love Fulci's like macro, super close-ups of the eye. He does some beautiful stuff with that. And I also noticed, you know, I'm talking about this kind of like as a Gorehound movie, but it also owes something a little bit. It reminded me of some of the Universal movies, like The Wolfman and Dracula and kind of stuff like that, like The Chillers. There's definitely like foggy graveyards and they've got some scenes where the reveal of the horror isn't a necessarily like big bombastic moment. It kind of leaves a little bit to your imagination. So there's a little bit of balance there that if you're not totally into the crazy gore, you know, you get some respite there. You get to imagine a lot of the horror that actually happens. So I think there's a good balance in there. Again, it's a movie that is short but feels a little long. But I think if you're having, you know, a couple of beers, maybe at the beginning of the night where you're not totally tired that you're going to pass out in the middle of the boring parts. But anyway, if this is the first of your horror movie marathon, I think you're really going to like City of the Living Dead if you're into just crazy witches and zombies and you toss anything into a movie with a bunch of gore and special effects i think you're really gonna dig this one uh city of the living dead i gave like three and a half stars deep red i gave four stars i've been really bad about watching movies like new movies that come out and amazon prime came out with uncle frank and it's this movie that got picked up at Sundance to a lot of acclaim. A lot of people were really praising Paul Bettany in it, who is the lead. And so I decided to kick it on, and I absolutely love it. It's one of those movies. Uh, Paul Bettany is playing a professor in 1976. He is in the closet to his family, but he's out in New York. You know, he is in New York as a professor, and his family is from Charleston, South Carolina. And you know, the South and their opinions towards homosexuality, especially in the 70s. And he has this uh, bond with his niece, played by Sophia Lillis, who's like the one in the family that gets him, and he is the one in the family that gets her, that kind of thing. And whenever uh, his dad, uh, Sophia Lillis's grandfather, dies, and he has to go back home for the funeral. That's when he starts confronting a lot of his past and his trauma. And it's a movie that is simultaneously harrowing because of Bettany's like layered, multifaceted, complex performance as this guy who holds so much pain but wants to move on and kind of live his life but he just can't escape that misery of his family and he wants to be loved and approved of and that kind of thing. Uh, there's so much, like, it can be so harrowing to watch this film. It can be so tough to watch it. But at the other end, this flip coin, it's so funny about it. And it's warm and it's sweet. And it's the kind of perfect Thanksgiving movie in my eyes. It's one of those movies that revels in the discomfort of the truth that hasn't been said or these uncomfortable words and secrets that everybody knows but nobody's really going to put out there but also kind of relishes in the warmth and the love that comes with having people that will love you unconditionally no matter who you are in a weird way 
doesn't steer away from a lot of the cliches of the person trying not to come out of the closet story that we've seen a couple movies do. But what really sells it for me is Paul Bettany. I know him as like 11th build in the in the Avengers movies. And this one to me made me go, okay, the next Paul Bettany movie, I am there. This guy is so good. He is so funny. He is so sweet. He can just stare off into space and deliver as if it were like a 12-page Shakespearean monologue of emotion. This guy is so good at just sitting in stillness and really conveying all the pain and trauma that's in his head. It's this guy that I'm constantly rooting for even though I don't agree or like some of the actions that he does. The supporting cast is pretty good. I mean, you've got people like Margot Martindale in this, Stephen Root, uh, Judy Greer pops in a little bit. Sophia Lillis, uh, the niece, I think she's okay. The movie definitely is kind of starting from her point of view, and I guess she's supposed to be the avatar for the audience, but after a while, it kind of dis distances away from her, and I think she's fine. She's never really given a chance to go, like, super beyond and really be, like, a full-fledged character to me. I think she's always just kind of, like, a way to push the plot. Definitely the beginning half hour is more about her, and it seems to, like go through a, oh, I'm a 14-year-old and nobody understands me except my uncle, but my uncle motivates me to do this and blah, 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 and we're going to continue forward. And then after we have to go all past this, you know, teenage coming-of-age story, the movie starts at like minute 35, and then it's about the uncle and his problems and his past and his trauma. And I thought that was a kind of a strange structure. I was kind of happy that they sped past it, though, because a lot of the dialogue is kind of cliched and if we're talking supporting cast too uh my favorite peter mcdc he plays frank's boyfriend wally and that man is just a walking grinning bear hug with like the shiniest teeth and the fluffiest looking beard and the warmest heart he's one of those guys that'll challenge paul bettany and what he's doing and how he's playing it and he's trying to poke at his buttons and make him smile even when he's sitting there angry and steaming and wanting to be alone uh, he's one of those guys that when sophia lillis makes a joke that i didn't particularly laugh at the way he laughs at it made the joke funnier like he is one of those guys that no matter who you put him up against he's gonna make them better that to me is just a hallmark of a supporting actor he's my pick like if the oscars were today give this guy best supporting actor because he's one of those guys that i want to follow to the ends of the earth he does get the short end of the stick sometimes and it is rough to see what happens and he's a muslim saudi arabian gay man in 1976 it's kind of like the bingo of terrible outcomes in america He's one of those guys that, like, no matter what happens to him, he always approaches it with a zest for life. And I think he really brings a lot of the warmth and the heart that the movie ultimately leans onto. You put Margot Martindale in a movie, she's excellent in it. You put Steven Root in the movie, who's playing the really fucked up, racist, dead grandpa. He's great in a movie, too, and he has his own little moments of uh, introspection. I think something like this that could so easily lean on cliche 
the best parts of it are in the performances and are in these little moments where these people leap from the page, they stop becoming these scripted archetypes and they really give you a chance to see you know, these real little battles that go on in all of us really when it comes to trying to present ourselves the way we want to present ourselves to the world versus how do we you know, pursue our beliefs when people go against them. You know, Stephen Root's character, there's a moment in there where I genuinely saw a guy who was genuinely scared that his son turned out to be gay. Like, because of this indoctrination in his religion and the way he sees the world and his homophobia, like, you really see that emotion in there. And it doesn't seem just as cookie cutter as we need a villain in this part. No, this is a person. With the smallest little scenes, the smallest choices in those scenes, we see actual people. And that, to me, made Uncle Frank special, even if the movie itself was just kind of like, okay. The performances were so good to me that it elevated it to something super special. Uncle Frank was heavy. So I decided to do like a 180 to emotional investment, and I watched Raw Deal for the first time. <laughs> I've been looking to beef up my Schwarzenegger repertoire for a while. So Raw Deal, it's 1986, and it's Arnold who is playing like a small town sheriff. I think he's currently in the witness protection program in this film, and one of his old FBI buddies calls him up, says, "Hey, this guy like was the reason my son was killed. I need you to infiltrate his organization and take him down." And so it's Schwarzenegger in an undercover movie. And it's fine. Like, it's pretty good. I wish it were a little bit more bombastic, a little bit more bloody, or a little bit more violent, or maybe a little bit more vibrant or fast-paced going. It's definitely kind of like a steady movie. It's not really like a steak and scotch film. It's more of like a hungry man dinner. Schwarzenegger is always as good as ever. But what I really, really loved, and I kind of wish they had more, was the woman that played his love interest slash friend in the movie. It, it's, a, it's a weird thing. But Schwarzenegger is, uh, he kind of teams up with this woman played by Katherine Harold. And the way they play off of each other, because she gets to have some fun in the action scenes too. And I'm sitting there going, like, this is kind of like a pre-Mr. and Mrs. Smith going on. And I kind of wish the movie was about these, like, romantic, slightly bumbling, comedic, uh, secret agent undercover people. Like, I wish the movie were about that a little bit more instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing his whole testosterone undercover thing. And again, it's not bad, but I think they had pretty good chemistry, and I would have loved that to be the movie instead. So, raw deal, good way it, it's a good palate cleanser i'll say that it's a good palate cleanser of a movie uh i move on look friends i am a swifty i love taylor swift i've always loved taylor swift on disney plus they had this documentary slash concert film uh it's called this has a really long title taylor swift dash folklore uh colon oh my god i forgot what that was i was about to say comma Folklore, colon, the Long Pond Studio Sessions. So it's Taylor Swift going through these acoustic versions of the songs off of her latest album, Folklore, which is her best album by far. At me if you must, but are you really going to debate with these songs? They're fantastic. 
It's like Taylor Swift wrote the Nationals album and is just my mind was blown. This is the this is better than my greatest dream for Taylor Swift ever. It's interesting for someone as uh, tabloid heavy or tabloid prone as Taylor Swift to explicitly take on a record that was external more than internal. Despite the fact that she was isolated, like we all were in quarantine, Taylor Swift kind of like took this album to expand on her um, on her storyteller ability, which I've always loved. One of the things I've loved about Taylor Swift is her way to put the details in the lyrics. And so you've got these great songs that are coming out of it. Hearing her talk about the stuff was really cool. After a while, it does get kind of long. I think your interest in the album really dictates your interest in the documentary because there's definitely a rhythm of Taylor Swift plays a song and there are two, three cameras and it cuts back and forth between the people that are playing the song. And then it cuts to a drone shot that goes over her studio slash house wherever she's recording this. And then it cuts to a two-person interview about the next song that's happening. And then rinse and repeat. After a while, that visual rhythm kind of gets boring. It's an hour and 46 minutes long, and it does feel like it's kind of droning a little bit. I think they cut some of the songs short. It does kind of get repetitive, so if you have to sit through a couple of songs on the record that you don't necessarily like as much, it might get to be a little bit of a slog. But I still think what Taylor Swift was talking about here made some of the songs actually better for me. I didn't know August was a part of this trilogy related to some of the characters in the album. Uh, Mainly there are this trilogy, I think it's Cardigan, August, and Betty. They're about this kind of like love triangle that's going on. And I didn't notice that until I listened to this. Uh, It was cool to hear that her boyfriend, Joe Alwyn, is a mystery songwriter on some of these it does feel kind of like a more open like oh i heard this melody in the kitchen on friday and i was like you know what let's write a song around that that's kind of like a cool vibe i love the sort of impromptu stuff of music and honestly sidebar i love joe alwyn i've always loved joe alwyn billy lynn's long halftime walk and the favorite should make this guy an indie darling but he's not And I don't know if that's his pretty boy look. I don't know if that's because his role in The Favorite was kind of minuscule and there is a mixed feeling on Billy Ling's halftime walk. But I've always loved the guy as an actor and I want him to get some notoriety. So the fact that Taylor Swift name dropped that her boyfriend wrote some of the best like choruses on the record (laughs) was actually really neat. Uh, But yeah, songs like August and especially Peace, you know, hearing how she described the song... uh, that's about to close the record not the closer but the one right before it that was a song i was kind of like okay on but after hearing how she interprets the song and how one of the writers aaron desner who's one of the brothers who plays in the national a fantastic indie band that i love they were talking about depression and also kind of helped that i watch everything's with subtitles so pretty much it's i had a lyric book as i was as i was listening to the album and so actually being able to read the lyrics and kind of like put them with the interview, kind of put the pieces together on the album was really helpful to me and helped expand my love of it. And so I asked y'all on Twitter and I'm doing this for Jackie. <laughs> Jackie on Twitter who loves folklore and Taylor Swift and uh, I'm pretty sure she'll appreciate this to some degree. We are going to do very quickly here my ranking of the folklore album uh worst to best we go 
Hoax, My Tears Ricochet, Seven, Mirrorball, Epiphany, Cardigan, and this is the area where I start to like really remember and really like the songs. Illicit Affairs, Mad Woman, Mad Woman, oh my god. This is me trying, The One, August, and then these are like the top five echelons, some of the best Taylor Swift songs ever written. Peace, Invisible String, Exile, The Last Great American Dynasty, and Betty, which if you're a fan of the Gaslight Anthem and Brian Fallon, tell me that is not the folkiest, most badass, like Brian Fallon song never written. It's like my second favorite Taylor Swift song right behind New Year's Day. Oh, it is neck and neck now. I love Betty so fucking much. That song is so good. And Exile makes me cry. And it makes me cry even seeing Justin Vernon perform the song while wearing this stupid mask covering thing. Oh, it's so good. Anyway, uh, Folklore, the movie, it was... If you like the album, you're going to like the documentary. If you love the album, you're going to love it. If you like it, maybe, you know, you might sit through some of the songs that you're, like, okay with and be like, all right, let's 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 hurry up, let's move it on. It's not perfect, but I think it's still pretty good. And so we move on from there to the first of my Black Friday double feature, which I happen to just call Lesbians, because I started with Hulu's new original movie, Happiest Season, uh, directed by Clea Duvall, co-written by Mary Holland, starring Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Uh, Kristen Stewart plays Abby. Mackenzie Davis plays Harper. They're a couple. They're happily in love. They're super cute. Abby doesn't really like Christmas. Harper loves Christmas, and she's trying to get her to meet her parents and her family for the first time, and maybe that'll be the thing that opens her up to loving Christmas. They are really adorable together. It's super cute just seeing them mess around and like sit on a roof and have shenanigans and whatnot. They are really, really cute together. Uh, Abby and Harper are going to the parents, but here's the thing. Harper's parents and her family, for one, they don't know that Harper's dating Abby, even though it's been a year, almost a year. And two, they also don't know that Harper's gay, which kind of puts some sticky wickets in the conversations, and it turns into one of those movies where Abby now has to be in the closet again as Harper's, uh, like, basically hiding her as her roommate in front of her family for this, like, week-long vacation. I was sold on this movie with the simple idea of lesbian Christmas shenanigans. Like, I just wanted a goofy, feel-good Christmas movie that just happened to have a lesbian couple as the lead. And instead, I kind of got this movie that really, really made me uncomfortable. It was just a movie that, for the most part, was watching Kristen Stewart trying not to, like, implode or, like, suck herself so far through her asshole out of anxiety that she would like prolapse into like another dimension it it was just kind of rough and it's one of those movies that like i really didn't think was funny and because i didn't think it was funny the stuff that made me uncomfortable really was heightened it's trying i think too hard to have its cake and eat it too where you've got this sort of uh dated concept of like trying to hide the partner from the parents in a weird way but now this actually carries some real trauma to it there's like a literally a joke where she's caught in the closet 
and I'm just sitting there like, man, I really didn't want this. It's super uncomfortable seeing her bombarded with all these signs of like, oh, this is the side of my girlfriend that I never knew. And why is she getting uncomfortably close to her old boyfriend from high school? And why does nobody seem to like know that, like, why didn't she tell them that we were dating or that she's gay? And I'm kind of uncomfortable with all of this. I would be more okay with it, I think, if it were a balanced film. But the problem is, what Mackenzie Davis does, she tends to be the... Harper tends to be the kind of person that is wrapped up in her own head. And so the way she comes off sometimes is not only aloof, but really just dismissive. And you can tell that she's trying to juggle everything, but in a way that really ignores the way somebody's feeling. We see so much of this movie from Kristen Stewart, Abby's point of view, that the film, when it tries to kind of like show a more balanced side, I don't feel like it's earned it. I don't feel like we see enough of the movie from Harper's point of view and Harper's struggles in order to kind of truly empathize with the conclusion that the movie wants to set you with. I was on Twitter and I saw Kayla here. She is a fantastic fantastic personality on film twitter y'all should definitely uh, follow her uh, you can follow her at clever girl i think both r's in the words clever and girl have two r's in it convinced there's a totally different version of happiest season somewhere out there where the relationship dynamics were likely more balanced so harper didn't seem like the villain and what we got was an edited film that managed to erase a whole character apparently like back in the earlier promotion of this movie, Clea Duvall was actually supposed to be in the film playing Abby's ex-girlfriend. We see Harper's ex-girlfriend in the movie played by Aubrey Plaza to a plum. I mean, Aubrey Plaza is just excellent in everything she's in. But it felt like with that in character in there, we might have had a more balanced like look at what life was like for these two instead of seeing everything through Kristen Stewart's uncomfortable point of view and really making her girlfriend out to be kind of an asshole. I know she's got struggles in her life that she's scared of coming out to her parents, but she really does seem like an asshole the way she's treating her girlfriend. Someone who really loves her. Someone who'd do so much for her. You can tell, like, the way that Kristen Stewart looks at Mackenzie Davis has so much love and affection there. Like, the chemistry really does work when they're having fun happy shenanigans at the beginning of the movie i really love them and as the movie kind of fell forward it was getting rough i wasn't happy during this one and i don't know if maybe that's part of the point to show kind of the honesty of every relationship how difficult it can be regardless of whether you're a woman who loves a woman or a man who loves a man or a non-binary person who loves any another non-binary person or a cis man or whatever have you you know, relationships always have their problems. So maybe that honest look was there. And Dan Levy, who's in the movie, again, he's just fantastic. That guy, put him in every movie ever. <laughs> he's playing a Kristen Stewart, one of Kristen Stewart's best friends. There's a scene where he's talking to her about the time that he came out. Everybody's experience is different, that kind of thing. And maybe that's really what the benefit of a movie like this is. I mean, take my review with a grain of salt. I am a cis straight guy. So, you know, I am I totally qualified to be talking about why a movie about a lesbian relationship doesn't work or makes me really uncomfortable? 
Uh, probably not. So I wanted to read some words from a lesbian critic who actually really, really liked it. A wonderful critic uh, by the name of Zofia Vichowska. Uh, she writes, for Nerdist, In Happiest Season, there are many uncomplicated, seemingly important, yet remarkably memorable scenes. I'm going to zoom past this real quick. Uh, for the LGBTQ plus community, these are the most significant scenes because thanks to them, we can visualize our future relationships and lives. And so she goes on to explain that movies like this that kind of normalize and really show this kind of everybody's experience is different, but everybody's experience is valid type of thing with the movie. That is really where the benefit of Happy Season sits. So even if it's a movie that doesn't necessarily work for me, because uh, I do think it's an imbalanced, kind of messy film, I do find that what it does as far as representation of you know queer relationships in cinema and normalizing that in a society that has actively you know railed against homosexuality since God knows how long. Uh, is a step forward and it's a good step forward i don't think it's the perfect step forward i wish it were funnier i wish there were, the slapstick were a little bit better i did love the production design everybody looked great in this film uh, i love some of the cinematography i did enjoy the performances i mean you you give me mary steenbergen you gave me victor garber in a movie i'm gonna like something they do uh, who's the lady that plays jane the one of the sisters that gets ignored by everybody. I actually really, really, really like her. Oh, seriously? Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so one of the right. So Mary Holland is Jane, the writer of the movie. That's incredible. Okay, so she's in the film as like the sister who is ironically playing a writer, and she's constantly ignored by her family, and she's just got this gosh golly happy attitude going on and i don't know she was such a goofball that i really really liked her i didn't know that was played by her that's 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 nice it's interesting to think that we would have had both director and co-writer in the same movie acting i wonder what happened like kayla says release the duval cut <laughs> i don't know if kayla said that i think i saw somebody respond to her saying that oh release the duval cut <laughs> i originally was gonna watch my week with marilyn right after this and that movie starts off with a big bombastic music scene and my kid was asleep so i was not about to wake this kid up because he's a screaming little baby and he's gonna get super so big mad and so i decided all right i need something quiet i need something like a drama i need something that's gonna calm this kid down so i chose portrait of a lady on fire which I actually really dug. I think I wrote on Letterboxd. Uh, by the way, I gave uh, Happiest Season two and a half stars. I think it was like very, very average of the road for me. Uh, Raw Deal gets three. Uncle Frank gets four. Taylor Swift gets four. Anyway, Portrait of a Lady on Fire got a four star out of me too. And I'm pretty sure the only reason I didn't get the five star was because about halfway through it, my kid woke up and so I had to start taking care of him <laughs> again. So I wasn't totally paying attention. It's not like one of those movies that... If you know French, you can kind of pay attention and listen one once in the background. If you can't, it's just noise. But what I really liked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire was it's one of those films that truly feels like every frame is a watercolor painting. It was so vibrant. Like this uh, period piece had such an energy to it. It was weirdly, 
it felt like a hangout movie, which is not what I expected based on a lot of the praise I heard of the film. It does seem kind of lackadaisical in the way it moves along and the kind of romance between Eloise and Marianne, Marianne uh, develops. And it's so cool. Like, like, honestly, it's just cool. I love a lot of the framing, like every shot that everybody's memed on Twitter, you know, the the way the person holds the book open in a painting, the, the mirror that's placed in front of a vagina, just uh, a lot of the reveals of Eloise uh, in that black veil is super freaking cool. Just these moments that make you go, damn, that is so well made. Like these are moments that are gonna stick in my head. And honestly, I think their chemistry is extraordinary. Like them playing cards was so cute. And coming right after seeing Happiest Season, I'm sitting there watching them like, God, this is what I wanted. I wanted so many more cute moments of like romance and just them being playful with each other. And I got that in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Even though it's about a movie where, you know, one of the women is hired to paint the other woman before she gets betrothed off to some Milanese suitor in Italy. It is the most fancy thing sounding in the world, blah, blah, blah. They develop a bond and they start becoming lovers. And that stuff should be, ultimately, it is sad, because you know, back in, I think the 19th century this is set, maybe the early 20th century, I, I don't know my centuries very well. But uh, wherever this is set, you know, like marriage was a big thing. So it's not like you can totally go off and elope with your lesbian painter girlfriend, whatever. No, you gotta have this duty. So you, like ultimately, you know, from frame, like once this is set up, you know this is not gonna end well. But it's kind of the experience of living in this and really being with these women and seeing how their love blossoms that really kind of gets you warm and fuzzy inside. and. Whenever the movie ends, you know, it's just that much sadder as a result. And I think this one is built truly off the strength of Celine Sciamma, who just picks the right notes to drop in this film and really squeeze all the emotion out of something that ultimately, really in the grand scheme of things, wasn't that crazy of a romance. But to them it was. And to them it meant everything. So the movie and the director are gonna make you feel like, yes, this romance was the world. This was as big as Leo and Kate and Titanic or Romeo and Juliet from the 60s with that guy that looked like Jack, Zac Efron or whatever. Like it has that sort of like fanciful romantic feeling without completely losing the integrity of like the emotion of like a regular relationship. And I don't know, it's one of those movies that I wish it were twice as long as it was. I wish it were a miniseries. I wish I would have had a full, like, real-time week of watching these people hang out and fall in love with each other, because I really do love them. And so, as, like, a two-hour pocket condensed of, like, a beautiful thing, I really did like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I thought it was damn good. I wish I would have gotten Oscar attention because, oh my god, that cinematography is a motherfucker. I close off my week on Letterboxd with a Martin Scorsese movie because that's totally on brand. Uh, very, very, very early last night. Uh, early, I mean like 1 to 2 to 3 a.m. I watched Mean Streets for the first time. And it's one of those Scorsese blind spots for me. And it's the closest that Scorsese f movies feel to like a music video. 
and saying that from the guy that tends to put damn near every album he's ever heard in one movie is really saying something but there's kind of like this punk rock frantic there's a lot of handheld camera going on it seems like a really rough and ragged version of the kind of things that scorsese would be playing with later the duality of living in a world of sin but trying to strive for something better you know harvey keitel is playing the guy who he is entrenched in the street life but through his uncle who's in the mob but he's elegant and he's carries himself with poise and respect that legitimacy is something that he craves he wants to take over that legacy and then you've got robert de niro who is just a spit firing motherfucker of a performance oh my god this is just incredible to me like i love this performance more than like travis bickle man this dude is just such a fucking he is so hungry and lean and he is going for it in every fucking moment rob de niro is fantastic as johnny boy who i consider the eternal fuck up he's the guy that goes around the neighborhood he owes everybody money and everybody knows not to give him money except the one guy that is continually trying to drag money out of this guy you know if you watch something like uncut gems you cannot tell me that adam sandler's character is in some way shape or form not drawn from this guy because it feels like there's this sort of pathological need for johnny boy to be selfish and fuck up and be this guy that's trying to get the quote-unquote big score or the big win or spend everybody's money or live with this nihilistic freedom type of thing i found myself being kind of like in the middle like sometimes i feel like johnny boy i feel like i can't get by in life that no matter what i do i'm trying so hard to be the good guy sometimes and it just doesn't work like i I think maybe that's more like Charlie, Harvey Keitel's character, that like, I'm in this world, but I'm trying to do better for myself, and I just can't really get myself to a better place. Like, where I am, I'm the highest in my group, but I want to get beyond that. I want to transcend to something that's a little bit more important, a little bit more stable, that kind of thing. It's kind of like being the one guy on the boat that knows the boat is drowning, and then Johnny Boy is the motherfucker that's like saying fuck it and just setting the boat on fire. And sometimes I feel like that too. Story and screenplay was partially written by Martin Scorsese, so I can't help but imagine that these are, you know, parts of Scorsese's head. That like he feels like these guys sometimes. And it seems like a very personal film for him. And in a way, it felt personal to me. And so I really, actually, really, really loved Mean Streets. I'd love to watch it again. I gotta buy it now, because Scorsese is my favorite director, so I gotta go and everything he has, right? But yeah, Mean Streets is a fucking badass movie. And if you haven't seen it yet, it is on Netflix. So go ahead and check it out and have yourself a grand old time. And yeah, if you like Harvey Kazile and Robert De Niro, it's mandatory watching. And that is it for the second episode of the Daniel Barrios podcast. I cannot thank you all enough for listening. I know this one was a lot longer than the last one, but hey, I had a lot more things to talk about, so I'm just going to go from there. And uh, I'm going to leave you this week with some dulcet tones. This one's for the Jewel Runners, for the Pistol and Fist Razors. This one is for the people who worship at the Church of Sleep with Killer Mike and LP. 
from Run the Jewels 3. This is Run the Jewels with Talk to Me. And until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of the movies, physical media, forever. We return from the depths of the Batman With a gun and a knife and a waistband With the war with the devil and Shaytan He wore a bad toupee and a spray tan So high now, hoping that I land On a tight stick, moving through Thailand On the radio, heard a plane hijack Government did that like the cook crack I'm moving a world of conspiracies Obey no rules, I'm doing me Smoke kush, transport to the airport Customs found a joint in my passport Full cash and I gave him what he asked for God damn it, it's a motherfucking miracle